Welcome to Golden Topics, which are personal discussions with a variety of professionals on critically important elder issues. Hi, my name is Mirit Hoffman. I'm a mother of three, a gerontologist, and an attorney specializing in elder law. My focus is helping senior citizens to stay in control when they reach significant junctions in their lives. I am a member of STEP, which is a global society of trust and estate practitioners. I lecture on estate planning and I write on various sites about the relationship between children and their elderly parents and the daily needs of the intergenerational family. These podcasts are personal discussions with a variety of professionals and are intended for anyone who is interested in being enriched with knowledgeable information regarding significant crossroads for seniors. Let's get started. I hope you enjoy it. Elderly, and today we're talking to Dr. Yoel Eisenberg, who is a geriatrician, and um, he'll give us a peek into his world. So first of all, good evening again, and uh, please introduce yourself, Dr. Eisenberg. Okay, my name is Dr. Yoel Eisenberg, as you've already heard. I'm a specialist in geriatric medicine. People, uh, people often ask me what that means. So I'll start with a little anecdote. <clears throat> this really is my credo. Mrs. Schwartz goes to her doctor and she says, doctor, my right knee hurts me. And the doctor says, Mrs. Schwartz, you've been schlepping for 80 years, children, grandchildren, Canadian or great grandchildren. <clears throat> you know that a car after 10 years is worn out <clears throat> and a car is made of steel. You're flesh and blood, so your knee's worn out for all the schlepping. He says, but doctor, my other knee is also 80 years old, and it doesn't hurt me. So Mrs. Schwartz actually was much smarter than her doctor. Excuse <coughs> me. She knows that you cannot attribute everything just to the chronological age that you have at any point in time. And it's a responsibility of professionals, including medical professionals, to look for some process that's not merely the inevitable result of having been born 80 or 90 years ago, but maybe the result of another process that, if properly identified, could lead to intervention where people are healthier, where they have fewer symptoms, where they have a better quality of life. And that's the job of a geriatric specialist. It's the job of the family doctor. But a specialist, as somebody once said, is a doctor who knows more and more about less and less until he knows everything about nothing. So a geriatrician, unlike a family doctor, knows a lot about the specifics of older people and about the fact that older people often present or manifest conditions in a different way or in an atypical way, or there may be various hidden or subtle processes that need to be teased out. And in particular in older people, there may be multiple diagnoses and you have to really tease out all of them because it's not just one diagnosis that explains all of the manifestations and all of the aches and pains and either the problems that a person is suffering from or the worries that their loved ones may observe and the elderly person himself or herself may not entirely be aware of. But those surrounding him say, you know what, grandpa's sort of um, left the, uh, the stove uh, with the fire on and so went to uh, went to the bathroom and then went to take a shower, 
and then went to take a nap. And, you know, I'm kind of worried. And that extends to driving, extends to a lot of other issues that are very, very sensitive. But uh, we do everybody a disservice by ignoring them or kicking the can down the road. Because as soon as you focus on these things, you can decide, is there a problem or isn't there a problem? Should we recommend a course of action or is everything okay as it is? And um, that's the job of a geriatric specialist. Marie asked me to describe a typical day. Well, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, I don't really have a typical day. I may see a patient who has an acute medical problem and that requires going to the emergency room and usually results in hospitalization. Or another patient may all of a sudden have uh, a turn for the worse in terms of their mood and they may be depressed. And that needs to be teased out in terms of any interpersonal um, uh, dynamics or they may uh, be advised to have certain medications. Other people may be in need of a functional assessment. How are they managing on their home if they're widowed or they're or they're divorced and they're on their own, can they manage what they need to do to get through their day? Do they need assistance? They need assistance with private insurance or me? Do they need to approach the Ministry of the Interior to get a permit to bring in a foreign worker to have somebody 24 hours a day? All of these things require focused assessment. Um, sometimes people come, they say, you know what? Um, we think our, our mother needs either an apotropos or a yipuikoach, which is a durable power of attorney. I'll leave it to Marie to elucidate um, the exact definitions and differences, but sometimes it's an important issue to explore. Should you have somebody for in the present or sometime in the future, if and when a person may not be able to make decisions for themselves? either temporarily or permanently, in which case they may say, you know what? Just like Yaakov Avinu had 12 children, but he knew that some of them were more trustworthy than the others. In fact, the firstborn really was a hothead, and he, he went down the, the road till he figured that his fourth son was the one he really wanted um, to be responsible. And so it would be worthwhile for, uh, for elderly people to say, I may be able to handle all of my affairs now and make all my health decisions and financial decisions, but maybe tomorrow or in 20 or 30 years, I'm going to need some help. So I'm going to say now that I want Chaim or I want Yanko or I want Rivka when the time comes and I'm, I trust them the most to be able to make decisions on my behalf. So there are many, many different kinds of situations. Some are acute, some are chronic, and... Um, Every case is different. There are usually many things going on. And the most challenging and interesting part of my job is figuring out of all the different issues that all the children and the, the, uh, the patient, him or herself, uh, brings up, which are the most important ones that require immediate attention. And that's when we get working, and I generally give them some homework to, uh, to complete the picture. Wow, so that's very challenging, actually, when you have a day which is very diverse and can be a few things going on at the same time. That's cool. I understand from what you explained that maybe as opposed to a family doctor or a dentist or other doctors where 
usually the patient is the one who comes and approaches the doctor and requests some help. Here, in this case, because maybe the people are more elderly or because there's also maybe cognitive issues, it's love. It's not necessarily the patient himself who approaches you. It could be the children. Is that right? Absolutely. It, it usually is a family member. Um, it's a minority of cases where people refer themselves, a distinct minority. And there are many reasons for that. Um, people who are today 90 years old grew up at a time when there weren't a lot of interventions. There weren't a lot of very effective treatments to combat diabetes or malignancy or neurologic disease or cardiac disease. And there are many more tools that we have now than we did even 20 or 30 years ago, let alone 70 or 80 years ago. Uh, in addition to that, if uh, people have some cognitive impairment, they may not be aware. Um, they may not be cognizant that they're sort of, uh, they're leaving the water running or they're sort of having trouble identifying where they are and how to get back home, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Or they may be depressed. And if they're depressed, they're very passive. They don't have initiative. They don't have energy. And uh, somebody else has to, has to help them to either get them to, to help or get the help to them so that they can elucidate what's going on and how to make them better. Right. Okay. And what are, like, the, if you can describe typical illnesses um, that, you know, come, to, come your way that have to do with old age and maybe discuss uh, the acceptable methods or things that can be done or things that you look out for when you, when you treat a patient like that? Well, I'll, if I had to think of a typical patient, I would uh, describe somebody who feels that they're, they kind of feel their memory isn't as good as, as, as it has been. They may say it's for one or two months, and usually one of their children would chime in, it's for one or two years. Um, we try to avoid getting into, uh, into debates or arguments, uh, but then I try to elucidate, are there any physical problems that may contribute to that? So, for example, they could be on insulin for diabetes, and maybe they're on more insulin than they need, and their sugar goes dangerously low. And they wake up in the middle of the night or early in the morning, uh, they're feeling, and uh, shall we say, cognitive issues. So, the physical problems that I, I explore as an internist often impact on, on emotional and neurological conditions. And before we decide that, well, maybe a person has some serious cognitive impairment, such as a form of dementia, maybe they're just on the medications that are making them intermittently confused. And it's critical and urgent to address those first. And I'm usually very slow and I drag my feet. People say, is this Alzheimer's? Is this Alzheimer's? The children want to know in five minutes or less. And I say, well, I don't know, but if you... If you check the blood sugar early in the morning, and if you do this blood test and you do this and you stop that medication, maybe they'll perk up. So I'm not eager to make a premature diagnosis, which could be a terrible travesty. Um, once these diagnoses are made, they stick like crazy glue. And even if they're wrong, it causes a lot of damage and it makes people just sort of give up and say, well, that's it. It's game over. Or they could have a sleep disorder. They could have obstructive sleep apnea and they're really, they don't realize it, but they're waking up half a dozen times at night 
And therefore, they're very tired during the day. They're sleepy. They're drowsy. They fall asleep. They could fall asleep behind a wheel. They have dementia. It means that they need to have their sleep hygiene uh, scrutinized. So if that's a typical case, it just shows that there are many pitfalls and we have to be very careful and look at all angles. There's the internal medicine, blood and guts angle. There's a neurological angle. There may have been a stroke or multiple strokes. There could be various intrapersonal conflicts. We see this very often amongst Holocaust survivors. The children have no idea. And when I speak alone one-on-one -on -one to the patient, they'll say, I never told my child about my time in the camp. And they may have been in a death camp and they refuse to tell their children. Maybe at the very end of their lives, they will tell their grandchildren because they want somebody to know. But they have kept their children in the dark for 60 or 70 years. And children have a hard time accepting that. Although, of course, it's nobody's fault. Uh, but it means that they don't really know what is affecting their parents today. And this is a very frequent phenomenon. So when someone is born in a country that was involved in any conflict during the Holocaust, I try very delicately and one-on-one -on -one with the patient to tease out what it was and maybe they're having nightmares or having flashbacks. These are very, very important issues and it's never too late to identify them and then to deal with them from there. Okay, well, that's a very important point because I'm sure that you actually see a lot of these cases where children are worried that it might be Alzheimer's and actually... It's to do with the medication, it's to do with the sleep apnea, it's to do with various thoughts that they have, it's to do with their history that suddenly comes out, like the Holocaust history that they have that suddenly comes out. Um, so that's actually a very important point that not, that I'm sure most people not, don't really realize. They probably go for the first thing that seems to be on surface the most obvious for them. And what I understand from you is that you actually look deeper to see if there's anything else that really is causing the issue and it's not Alzheimer's or something like that. A common misconception, people say, Doc, tell me this isn't Alzheimer's because my, my mother had Alzheimer's and I want to make sure I don't get it. So the first question I ask them, did your mother get diagnosed with Alzheimer's in her 60s or in her 80s? Because if she was diagnosed in her 60s, there very well may be a genetic link. If your mother was diagnosed in her 80s, then that, that, that person's adult children has the same lifetime risk as anybody else. They do not have a greater risk because their mother was diagnosed with dementia at the age of 85. And what that translates uh, is if you live to say 95, you have about a 30 to 35% chance of developing dementia. Many other people have some mild form of forgetfulness that is not Alzheimer's. That means that certain aspects of their recall may be slower. They may be a little forgetful with names, but it's not dementia. And the first thing people think about, um, and it shouldn't be, because we should look for things where we can really, really intervene. The depression is a classic example. Um, if a person is depressed and they respond to treatment, whether it's talk therapy or medication, all of a sudden they're more alert, they're able to concentrate, they're able to listen. And if they listen and whatever you told them went in, they won't ask you 10 minutes later because 
it registered. But if they're really depressed and they're not even paying attention, they're not going to remember something that never sank in in the first place. Right. Okay. I know you spoke a little bit about it when you when you introduced yourself. Maybe maybe emphasize a little bit more the difference between geriatric medicine and family medicine. Um, what's a family doctor and a geriatric? What's the differences between the two? Well, the difference is that a geriatrician knows much more about a specific spectrum of diseases. Uh, the certain conditions that are common in the elderly, they often present in a very atypical way. Just for example, an older person may have an infection and not have fever. That infection could be pneumonia, it could be a urinary infection or infection in case of elderly males in the prostate, and they won't have the typical symptoms. Do so you have to know how to look for atypical symptoms or do blood tests or urine tests, or you may have to do a chest x-ray to discover something that isn't obvious. And a family doctor, who's, you, if they use the yardstick of a 40-year-old who is otherwise healthy but may have one new diagnosis, that doesn't hold up for an 85-year-old who has, may have multiple chronic conditions and a very atypical manifestation of an acute disease. So you need to know a lot more about the manifestations, about the signs and symptoms, how you go about making the diagnosis. And then once you do that, you have to know if to treat and how to treat. I very commonly get, get asked by, by people, even though my mother is having hallucinations or various uh, delusional uh, thoughts, um, she's, she may accuse her 95-year-old husband of having an affair with a Filipino something that seems highly, highly, highly improbable. Um, there are medications for that, but the children say, I don't want my mother to be a zombie. That's very legitimate, but of course it's my role to make sure that if I choose a medication, I started a very mild dose so that it's highly unlikely that they will become overly sedated and what people call, frequently call being a zombie. Okay. And... What happens, unfortunately, as people get older, the risk of their decline in their cognitive health does rise. Um, how do you diagnose a person who has a decline in cognitive health? How do you know to diagnose him in the respect that he has a durable path attorney, then that needs to actually be activated now or to send the family members to guardianship, to request guardianship from the court in the event that he doesn't have a durable habit Can you explain a little bit about that? So first of all, I want to see if there's any acute problem. It's less likely today than a year or two ago, but they could have corona. And corona is known in about 40% of cases to affect the brain. So they could have some other acute problem. They could have had a stroke. They could have... Uh, fall and have a blood clot inside their skull that's outside of the brain. It's called a subdural hematoma. There are many, many other things they could have. So the first thing is, is there an acute problem that is exacerbating their loss of function? In which case we have to address that in order to improve it. Uh, it could be withdrawal of certain medications. It could be a combination of new medications. There are many, many other things that can precipitate a rapid decline. So the first thing is, is something going on 
that is treatable so that this is a reversible condition. If not, there are many ways of assessing um, what their cognitive function is like. There are certain standard tests, but there's also more practical things. I look at how a person walks. I asked him to, I saw a patient recently who was very unsteady on their feet. And what I wanted to check if they can take off their shoes and put their shoes on, they did it standing up and they almost fell down. So in that case, the problem was that they had a lack of insight and their judgment was poor. They should have sat down and then they could put their shoes on without fear of falling. So in addition to the standardized screening tools, we also just examine the patient as they go through various spaces. They see how, how their mobility is. We see how they get dressed and undressed. And we can always refer to various specialists and occupational therapists can do a whole kitchen assessment with them to see how they actually can cook a meal, if they can cook safely or not. Uh, sometimes I have to refer people to the uh, Department of Transport. Uh, this is a very, very sensitive issue, and it usually takes a lot of time and patience till I finally get family members to admit that they are worried when they're sitting next to the patient when the patient is driving. Because, well, it wasn't my fault, and well, I haven't had an accident in 50 years. And then eventually, and it's not the first time, but when I asked the patient permission to speak to the wife or to the, the son or the daughter, I get a different story. And then I realize there is a concern on the part of the family of impaired driving, and I don't judge their driving. I'm not competent to assess their skill driving, but I am obligated by law to report a concern or a suspicion of impaired driving. And people fail to do that. You could wake up one morning and um, be on the other side of a fatal accident that could have been prevented if, if the proper uh, um, the, the proper uh, in, uh, assessment was performed. And at some point I ask people, what are their medical conditions? What are their medications? And if they say, I have no medical problems, and I see on their summary from Kupatli, they have about 15 diagnoses, and they claim to be on no medications, it's clear that they have very poor insight into their condition. And that's one of the things that maybe say, well, maybe you need a power of attorney, or you need somebody to be involved in your care, because you may not be competent, I don't, I'm very careful as to which words I use with the patient, but as I told them you read before when we came on air, I've known of cases where a little old lady broke her hip and she was clearly not competent to sign um, her permission for, uh, for hip surgery, which really should be done within 24 hours. And if nobody else has the legal court-based authorization, the orthopedic surgeon should say, well, go to the court, nine o'clock tomorrow morning, we're pu putting off the surgery because you didn't arrange for a power of attorney before this happened, when you could have seen it happen coming for the last few years. So there are times when I say this is something we should look into, whether it's for the present or any future eventuality, so that we have plan B in place in case it's needed in some unexpected circumstance. Right. So it's important to monitor, it's important to get the diagnosis early as possible in order to be able to monitor the person, the patient, to make sure that, you know, it doesn't deteriorate to a plane 
to a point where there's nothing that can be done afterwards. It's from what I understand from you. Okay. Let's talk a little bit. We only have a few more minutes, but let's talk a little bit. I understand that you're also a specialist in the field of psychogeriatric, right? So can you explain a little bit about that? Okay. Psychogeriatrics is a vague term in terms of how it is officially defined and supervised by the Ministry of Health. A geriatric specialist has gone through formal training, a formal fellowship, and has a specialty license with a number after it. The same is true for a specialist in surgery or an, an eye doctor or a pediatrician. The same is true for a psychiatrist. People who are involved in the mental health issues of the elderly, and that includes uh, the categories such as dementia, depression, acute confusional state, may include a geriatric doctor such as myself with training and experience in the field, or it can include a psychiatrist who similarly has training in the field, or a neurologist. All three of those specialties are recognized by the courts if they submit a formal opinion. We think this person is competent to manage their own affairs, this person is competent to drop a will, or they're not competent. This person may need somebody else to, to be the uh, alternative decision maker. So I have a diploma as a psychogeriatrician, but that diploma does not have the same rigor or supervision as a formal specialty license, whether for myself as a geriatrician or the psychiatrist. Uh, but any condition that is common on the elderly is something that I've dealt with for the last 35 years beyond my training. Uh, conversely, if there's a 90-year-old who had schizophrenia since the age of 20, I do not take care of those people because those people have grown older with a pure psychiatric condition that does not arise in old age. I see. Okay, so that's actually very important. So you have also the psychotic, the psychoanalysis capabilities and also the geriatric capabilities, and a lot of times those go together as people get older. So that's that's very important, that combination. That's great. But I, I want to just get back to my background. Before I had my specialty training in geriatrics, I am also an internist. So I, I go back and forth. Is there is a problem kidney failure or heart failure or multiple strokes? And then my, my attention shifts to the physical and to see if there are any diagnoses that are maybe not clarified or not optimally treated. And if they were to be treated, then that person's mental function may improve. So sometimes it is purely a neurological condition or purely a psychiatric condition. And sometimes it is a bodily condition that impacts on the person's cognitive function. I see. Okay. We're near the end. Anything else that you would like to add before we finish our discussion? There are many things. I can only say that one of the other differences between myself and a family doctor is that I usually spend about 40 minutes with the patient. They say, well, why 40 minutes? The answer is patients get pretty tired after that because they're being asked a lot of questions. I'm poking them either emotionally or physically. It's very draining. And the family doctors, by and large, unfortunately, in Israel and probably in other jurisdictions, don't really have the luxury of going in-depth into various different 
conditions. So we very often see people just have their medications renewed for years on end and nobody stopped and said, this medication was, may have been appropriate five years ago. Do you still need it? Or is the dose you had five years ago the right dose for you today? And they just get automatic repeats. They send the daughter-in-law or the grandson to pick up their medications. And sometimes you should say, stop. We really need to do a proper head-to-toe assessment on this person, see where they're at, and see what medications we can reduce or stop. And if they need something new, try to make sense out of the whole mumble-jumble. Well... I think actually 40 minutes is a lot. That's that's very good that you have that up that opportunity to be able to see the whole picture whereas the family doctor, you're right, not necessarily will get will be able to get all that in. Okay, well that's a very important point. So as always, it's been very nice and very interesting and it went by very very quickly. Um so thank you very very much Dr. Eisenberg for being with us. Thank you, Marie. Thank you. Glad to be of assistance. Thank you very much, people. Thank you for listening to another episode of Golden Topics. I hope you enjoyed it and that it provided you with important information. Do not forget to click and subscribe to Golden Topics so that you can stay updated on my upcoming podcasts. And of course, please share and invite family and friends to listen so that they can also benefit from the information discussed here. You are also welcome to visit my website, www.lawmirit.com, and to follow me on Facebook for more information regarding intergenerational estate planning and the various needs of the elderly population. I'm already waiting for you with my coffee in the next episode. Oh.